about two-thirds of the New Testament. And 2 Corinthians is the most personal, uh, arguably the most personal, and the most autobiographical of all of his letters. And the reason's pretty simple. When he helped establish this church, he lived with them for 14 or 15 months. And you develop relationships when you stay, live with somebody for over a year, and he got very close to them. So this was more than a church to him. It was like a church family and a child to him. So when he heard that they were struggling, uh, he was really, really hurt by that. And he wanted to make sure that he tried to get them back in line so that they could be effective again. Now, he wrote them one letter. He actually wrote four letters, but two were considered inspired. And the first letter he sent to them that was inspired, uh, he thought would make some changes. He was hoping to deal with the opposition he was facing. Uh, so after he writes his first letter, I mean, in his mind, he's thinking it's handled. So he decides to stop and check on them before he writes his second letter. And he gets there and he's like, okay, maybe not. Because they were still going astray and they had a lot of opposition to his message and they were questioning his integrity. And a lot of times when someone is struggling and drifting away from God, we do what's called transference. Uh, we transfer our guilt and our anguish to someone else and attack them with that guilt. And that's basically what was going on because if you hear some of the dumb things they were questioning him about, it just shows that it was basically them you know, reflecting their own struggles because... What they were mad about was that he told them a certain day he was going to come to be with them and a certain route he was going to take to get there. And I'm thinking, you know, yeah, I know, uh, you know, this does, life happens along the way and it shouldn't be that big a deal. But Paul run into some things and he said, hey, I can't make it that day and I'm going to have to take a different route to get there. So they said, oh, OK, well, then you're a liar. Not good enough to be an apostle. I mean, <laughs> that's when you know somebody's got some real anger issues when you change your route and date of arrival and they say you shouldn't be an apostle. So this is some of the stuff he had to deal with. Now, he wrote this letter basically to defend himself uh, and kind of open up about struggles in ministry because they were struggling. They were in a Greco-Roman uh, area of the country. They had uh, a lot of Grecian influence, which is very pagan. And they just got tired of being persecuted, and some of them were starting to give in and to compromise. And he wanted them to know, listen, I struggle too. He's like, you guys might hear all the stories of the great things that have happened. You also need to hear the stories of me being beaten and locked up and, and going into towns and having to work for my keep and, and being accused of things and constantly, constantly being on the radar of the enemy. I struggle too. He's like, but I just want you to know that God brings victory to people when they are willing to stand strong. So in today's message, Paul's going to discuss the power of God's promise of a bodily resurrection. And it's powerful because it should, notice I said should, it should give us confidence that this world is not as good as it gets. See, a lot of times I think we're very flippant about the resurrection. We go, okay, and Easter we'll remember that. But remember this, the resurrected body tells us that everything here is temporary. There's something better coming. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So I titled the message, The Best is Yet to Come, because the best is yet to come. Okay. So 2 Corinthians chapter 5, let's jump into today's lesson. It says, For we know that when this earthly tent we live in is taken down, that is, when we die and leave this earthly body, we will have a house in heaven, an eternal body made for us by God himself and not by human hands. Okay, in verse 1, Paul is referring to what he discussed back in 2 Corinthians 4, 14 through 18. And in 4, 14 through 18, he said that his future bodily resurrection, in essence, robbed the enemy of the fear of death on him. He, it, made, it robbed death of its power over his life. He wasn't afraid to die anymore because he knew that this was not his final body, his final destination. So he knew that the resurrected body was what empowered him uh, to stand firm even in the face of death. 
And thankfully, the same is true for everyone who's trusted Christ as their Savior. Anyone who has trusted Christ as their Savior has victory over death right now. And a lot of people say, well, we'll have that victory over death after we die. No, we have it now. We just haven't got to experience that. But we already have the victory. There's nothing that can be done to change that. You know, we are victorious over death. And death should only be a fearful type thing to someone who's separated from God. Because if you're in a relationship with God, death should not be something that scares you. Now, don't take me wrong. I'm not telling you to go jump in front of a train, but I'm just saying, you know, you still shouldn't let the fear of death uh, hinder you. Now, no matter how imperfect believers are, one thing that Paul also told them was, listen, not only do we have power over death, but also we are guaranteed. It's not just something passive. We are guaranteed eternal life with Jesus. And Jesus in John 5, 24 wrote this, or said this rather, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed what? Out of death and into life. This is Jesus saying, if you believe, this isn't anything conditional. He's not saying if you're good, you get this. He's not saying if you go to church every Sunday, you get this. If he did, I'd use that, right? He's just saying if you believe, you will be resurrected. You already have passed out of death and into life, right? So when Paul starts discussing this earthly tent we live in, he's actually talking about the body that we live in. Right? And it's kind of a brilliant illustration. He's basically reiterating what Jesus said to the Jews, okay, just a little differently. If you look at John 2, 18 and 19, the Jews uh, then said to him, what sign do you show as your authority for doing these things? Let me just throw in that they're still asking for a sign from someone who walked on water. You know, someone who raised the dead, healed the sick, fed thousands with a few fish and a few loaves of bread. And they're going, yeah, well, show us. Why are you so powerful? <laughs> you know, he's like... I mean, you know what I mean? What do I have to do? But uh, verse 19, Jesus answered and said, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again. Then uh, the Jews then said, It took 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Now this conversation between the Jews and Jesus that I just read took place after Jesus walked into the temple and saw there were merchants and they were selling sacrifices and doing all kinds of stuff that was carnal, and he was angry. And you can sweeten that any way you want to, but he was angry, okay? And he turned their tables over, and he ran them out of, the, out of the temple, and he said, don't make my father's house a den of thieves. And basically, they were saying, wait, well, hold on a second, carpenter, carpenter's son. Who are you to come into our temple and upset the apple cart to go against all the things we've been doing for a long time? What gives you the authority to tell us to leave? Right? And so he said, tell, they said, tell us what gives you this authority. And he said, I'll tell you what gives you this authority. And immediately when he thinks of the temple, when he saw the temple, he saw what it was designed to do. The temple was designed to point to the body of Christ. That's what it was designed to do. So he says, okay, here's, here's where I get the authority. Destroy this temple. And in three days, I'll resurrect it. Right? And of course, they didn't get it. Right? And of course, they, being self-righteous, thought they were talking about the beautiful temple that they had built. They thought he was saying they could tear it down and he would personally rebuild it physically in three days. And they misunderstood this so much that these words actually ended up being the words used to convict him and put him to death. These very words. Mark 14, 58. says, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another made without hands. 
Notice they changed that a little bit, didn't they? But, you know, they were saying, well, he said he could tear it. We, if we tore the temple down, he, was, he could just magically rebuild it. That's blasphemy, and that was the words that actually convicted him. Obviously, we know Jesus was talking about his body, and some of them probably did too, but they just wanted him gone, right? So Paul used kind of a similar, a similar analogy, but, but instead of the temple, he called our bodies tents, right? The word earthly, it's kind of neat how, he, how the Greek works out here. The word earthly is from the Greek word epigeos, and it means located on earth, located on earth. And the word tent comes from the Greek word skenos, and it means temporary dwelling. So Paul was saying that our bodies are temporary dwelling places here on earth. He was drawing a picture of like an apartment or uh, a temporary shelter you build when, you, when the nomads were traveling. It's something just temporary, not designed to last forever. So he was saying that our bodies are just temporary dwelling places on earth. Don't put too much into the physical nature of man. It's not going to last. See, Jesus said when they destroyed his earthly dwelling, he would raise it up in three days. And Paul was saying when he destroyed our earthly dwelling places, which is all of us, anyone who's believed, that he also would resurrect our bodies like he was going to resurrect his own. So this is something that really brought a lot of confidence and a lot of strength to the people of that time and the people in Paul's era because this promised future bodily resurrection gave them a mindset that said, okay, this is not as good as it gets. Let me ask you, how many people are glad you're not stuck with this body for the eternity? Somebody, how many, there's one person back there going, I don't know, I kind of like my... You know, but I'm just saying, I am so glad. How many people, when you get out of bed, make all kinds of weird noises? Just raise your hand. Some of the kids I coach go, ooh, when I stand up, and I'm like, shut it, kid, your day's coming, because I'm loving like that. Uh, but anyway, so what it does, and the reason it, it gave them so much confidence, it ensured them and ensures us that it's impossible for the enemy to have any victory over us. The bodily resurrection that's promised us says we've already won, What's the worst you can do to us? Kill us? Listen, if the worst the world can do to us is send us to spend eternity with our Savior, bring it. You know, that's the worst they can do. They have nothing. Why should we be intimidated when the worst thing they have to threaten us with is sending us to be with Jesus? I just, you know, that's what gave them confidence. It should give us confidence. And because of that, when Paul was talking to the Thessalonians, he said, because we know that this isn't as good as it gets and the best is yet to come, we shouldn't grieve the same way that the world grieves. Look at 1 Thessalonians 4.13. He says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. Now, the Hebrews, I've said this many times, did not like to use the word death, so they used sleep, slumber. Uh, so it's talking about those who have died. He said, but, uh, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as the rest who have no hope. The word hope, el peace in the Greek, means confidence, confident expectation, as those who have no confidence. Verse 14, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep or have died in Christ or in Jesus. Verse 15, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep or have died in Christ. Now, that is absolutely amazing because what he's saying is there's no back door. There's no way that you're going to find a way to be, to get your glorified body and to be with Jesus ahead of the people who have already passed. They are with him. They beat you. You lost. Okay? If you were in a race, you lost. They're going to see him first. They're going to get their glorified bodies first. That's what he was saying. He says, 
Uh, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. A lot of people get confused about that. The dead in Christ is talking about the bodies that you leave in the grave. Now understand something. When a Christian dies, they never enter a grave. If you have a loved one that's passed on, what you put in the ground was not them. Was not, that's why I told my wife, I don't care what you do with my body. You know what I mean? It doesn't matter. I, I told you what I want to do with me. You all know what I want to do. I want to be cremated and put in a pot of chili at my funeral. I'm just saying. So when I die, you all better be careful with the chili. Tell me you don't think that'd be cool, though. Pastor Chris will be with you always, well, at least the next four or five hours, depending on your metabolism. <laughs> but anyway, that's what he was talking about. He was talking about, you know, the dead in Christ, those bodies that are in the ground are going to come out of the ground. But just like when you plant a seed in the ground, seeds don't come up. When you plant a seed in the ground, fruit comes up, vegetables come up. It comes up something totally different. The body we put in the ground isn't what is what's coming up. What's coming up is a glorified body, a glorified body. We'll talk about that here in a minute. Verse 17, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up. Latin word raptura, where we get our word rapture from. So then we who are alive and remain will be raptured up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, what? Comfort one another with these words. He's saying you should be comforted by the fact that you will have a resurrected body. You should be comforted by that. Now, when he said by grieve, when he said you shouldn't grieve as those who have no hope, he's talking about the sorrow that we feel for uh, the loss of a loved one, and you're going to feel it. He's not saying when you become a Christian, learn to be hard as a rock and don't shed a tear when somebody dies. It's natural to miss the presence of someone that you've been around, someone that you love. That's natural. It's natural that we're going to grieve. He's saying go ahead and grieve, but don't grieve like it's over. Don't grieve like it's the end. See, the world says when you die, it's over. So get all you can while you can get it. That's dead wrong. Pardon the pun. They literally don't understand that the perspective we should have is that's not the end that's the beginning of the realization of the promises that he has made us to have eternal life that's the beginning that's not the end so we should have a different perspective and when jesus comes back we are going to see all those people who have passed on and believers who have passed on before us coming with him and the cool thing is is they get their glorified bodies first right so when they come back we're going to see them but they're going to be different because when they return, they'll be perfect. There'll be no sickness. There'll be no injury. There'll be no hindrances. They will have a perfect glorified body. People always ask me what it's going to look like. I don't know. I'll tell you when I get there. I'm not sure. Maybe like this. No, I'm just kidding. I don't know what it's going to look like, but it's going to be glorified. Lord knows it won't be like this, right? But I don't know what it's going to look like, but here's what I do know. We're going to be perfect. And when we see them, we're not going to see the one that died of cancer with their hair falling out. We're not going to see the one that was in a car accident. You know what we're going to see? The creation of God, the way God wanted it to be. That's what we're going to see. What went into that ground is not what we see coming back, right? And in verses 2 and 3, he reminds them that those who believe in a bodily resurrection, because they know all these things, sometimes get a little excited and a little anxious for it. All right, get a little excited. Not anxious in a negative context, but anxious like a kid on Christmas Eve. When I was a kid... I didn't sleep a wink on Christmas. How many people here had trouble sleeping on Christmas Eve growing up? Okay, I got to know. How many of you peeked at presents? Raise your hand. You. That's terrible. I never did because I didn't know where they were. But I'm just saying. I know, but I would get so excited. I'd drive Dad nuts. I'd wake up at 3. Dad, time to open presents? No. 
go back to bed. 3.45, hey, Dad, time. No. Next time I come, 4.30, before I even knock, no. Okay. <laughs> Finally, he'd go, open your presents. Right? You just get so excited about opening these presents. They started getting exciting about, uh, excited about receiving the gift that they were promised of a new body, a resurrected body. 1 Corinthians 5.2 says, we grow weary in our present bodies. How many people have ever grown weary in your present body? Right? We grow weary in our present bodies, and we long to put on our heavenly bodies like new clothing. For we will put on heavenly bodies. We will not be spirits without bodies. Now, the believers of Paul's time who understood, truly understood the resurrection, anxiously and excitedly awaited that time. Not because they were depressed, not because they were suicidal. It wasn't that. They weren't saying, oh, oh, kill me. That's not what they were saying. They were just so thankful for the promise of eternity with Jesus and their loved ones that they kind of looked forward to it. And that makes sense, doesn't it? Well, I look forward to that, that very same thing. Throughout the New Testament, there's two different reactions you see to suffering, right? The one reaction we're talking about here would be one of them. See, the first reaction is the opposite of what I just read. We see some people who react to suffering by just compromising or surrendering. Unfortunately, that's what was happening to some of the Corinthians. They were just sick of it. They were tired of being persecuted. They were tired of the world making them feel stupid. They were tired of, of people being prejudiced against them. They were tired of people being put to death simply for their faith. And rather than stand strong, a lot of them said, okay, well, I mean, what do I got to say to make you stop? What do I have to say to make you leave me alone? Some of them just got to that point. They were giving up. And sadly, when people get in that category, they usually live lives of fear and anxiety and regret. Because compromising with the world is putting yourself against God. And you're not going to have a great life when you're trying to be buddies with the world and reject God. So the ones who give up, that's the first reaction to suffering, and it's, it, it doesn't turn out good for them. But the second reaction to suffering is what we just talked about, and that's those who say, listen, okay, you're going to make me suffer. I get it. Make me suffer. But understand this. You can only do it as long as I live. And people say, yeah, but our life expectancy is 75 years. Well, the life expectancy of eternity is forever. You know what I mean? So there are some people look at the suffering and say, I'll pay that price for what I get in return. The investment is worth the payout. You know what I mean? People in this category have a greater appreciation for the value of the gift of eternal life. They appreciate it more, right? And as a result, they draw strength from, and, and that gives them the ability to endure any kind of suffering. And it actually makes them more, more excited about serving God because they know that the benefits of faith greatly outweigh the suffering. They just understand that, right? That's the two kinds of suffering, and that's what Paul was talking about, the latter. Now, in verse 3, I love how Paul corrected this common misconception that still exists today. I deal with this all the time. When we go to heaven, what do we look like? Okay, let me tell you what we will not look like. We are not going to look like fat little babies in diapers with wings and bows and arrows. Where did the bows and arrows come from? I don't know. You know, that we're not going to look like that. I don't know where that came from. Okay, it must be a Disney thing. I don't get it, right? We are not going to be floating puffs of smoke. Anybody here ever watch Lost? You know the big puff of dark smoke? That people think that we're going to be a big puff of white smoke floating around in eternity. No. We're not going to look like the elves on Lord of the Rings, all glowy and pale. That's not, that's not what we're going to look like. We are going to have actual bodies, just glorified bodies. They're just glorified. They can't get sick. They can't die. They'll have perfect understanding, right? And here's something else that you have to know. 
And I would love to preach a whole sermon on just this next topic here, but I, I don't have the time right now anyway. But we will know each other. Some people make it sound like we won't know each other. That's ridiculous. We will know exactly who one another is. Just because we will love everyone the same doesn't mean we won't also love and know people as individuals. We will know them. And I've had people tell me, I don't want to love everybody like I love my family. Does it weird you out that you're going to love other people as much as you love your kids? Listen, why is that a problem? Listen, I, you know how excited you get when you see your children come in? Some of you, some of you are going, I don't know what you're talking about. But let me put it to you this way, especially your grandkids. Trust me, you like them better. <laughs> but <laughs> when, you see your, when I see my grandbaby come in, I don't care what's going on in my life, I am a happy man. I babysit usually around once a week. It is the highlight of my life. Every week, I love to babysit. Imagine if when you see everybody, you have that kind of excitement. Is that really a bad thing? I mean, anybody you see, you're going to love that much. I think that's amazing, but you will still know who they were and who they were to you on earth. Now, without going into too much, I'll give you some proof. All right, one of these days I'll give you a whole sermon on it. But if you remember the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus went up to the Mount of Transfiguration and he was transfigured from his physical body into a glorified form. On the Mount of Transfiguration, James was up there, was one of the ones that was up there, and so was Jesus. And they get up there. And so was Peter, and Peter gets up there, and he sees him, and two other figures appear with Jesus. And Peter said it was Moses and Elijah. Now, they didn't come in, and he says, here, take the brochure. It'll tell you who's on Mount Transfiguration. That's not what happened. He got up there, and he recognized who they were. He saw them and knew them and understood who they were. That's the example of a glorified body that is coming back and was able to be recognized and they were transfigured that's why it's called the mount of transfiguration right so we do know that we will be known just as we were known people will see us right and they'll know who we are right uh, i'm telling you that excites me in and of itself if you've got anybody you're waiting to see that excites you right now uh i'm okay i'm just gonna bring this up how many people here how many people here have ever thought about this, all the good things that's going to happen with the resurrected body? And how many people have actually said, Lord, just come? I'm ready to go. How many people have said, Lord, get me out of here? Take me out of this dump. But I, I, listen, this sounds terrible for a pastor to say, I've even prayed, Lord, please come back and get me out of this trash can. I can't stand it. Please, Lord, come back. Right before I have to clock in at work, come back, Lord. You know, I, I have prayed that. Have anybody here ever prayed that? Be honest. The rest of you, yes, you have. There's times you're thinking, Lord, please come back, right? But then it comes to me, I know that's a selfish prayer, and while I'm here, I'm going to do the work he's given me to do, but I would be happy if he came back. Sometimes you just get excited. Have you ever been so burdened, so hurt, or just so perplexed at how the world is turning upside down that sometimes you just go, God, I don't want to see it get worse. Come back already. But God's going, hey, listen, <laughs> eternity means so much more than the time that we're spending on earth right now. Just use this time to serve so more people can spend that time with us. Don't let it get you. It's just temporary. So that's, I mean, I'm just coming clean. I have prayed that God would get me out of the fixer-upper, okay, and get me out of this world, which is a fixer-upper that really can't be fixed. Okay, now in verses 4 through 10, 
Paul kind of uh, elaborates more on the desire to trade in these earthly bodies. So 2 Corinthians 5, starting at verse 4, we'll go through verse 7. It says, while we live in these earthly bodies, we groan and sigh. But it's not that we want to die and get rid of these bodies that clothe us. Rather, we want to put on our new bodies so that these dying bodies will be swallowed up by life. God himself has prepared us for this, and as a guarantee, he has given us his Holy Spirit. So we are always confident, even though we know that as long as we live in these bodies, we are not at home with the Lord, for we live by believing and not by seeing. So in verse 4, Paul acknowledges something most believers are too prideful to admit. We are whiners. Now, some of you are worse than others, but every last one of us are whiners. And we complain. Everybody whines and complains when we struggle. Right? That's just the way it is. Some are worse at it. And again, he reminds them that, listen, he wasn't saying that when you struggle that you should commit suicide. He wasn't saying that when you struggle you should pray to die. That's not what he was saying. He was just saying that when you start to struggle, don't focus on the struggle. Focus on the promise. And the promise is this is not as good as it gets. The best is yet to come. That's the promise. Focus on what is coming, and what is coming is so much better than what we have here. And what he's saying is these people were just eager to experience that amazing life God had promised for all believers. They were eager, and I'm eager. They were eager to enjoy that. Then he reminded them that God didn't just promise us this amazing eternal life. He also guaranteed us eternal life guaranteed it and he guaranteed it by putting a piece of himself in everyone who believes and all of you should know by now that piece of him that he puts in all of us when we believe is say it like you got him the holy spirit that's the piece of him that he puts in each one of us right and because the holy spirit is a part of god and resides in us he acts like a brand you know a brand they stick on cows, right? And people, evidently. Do you know people brand themselves? Listen, I am not that tough. I'm sorry. And I'm not, I'm not the old traditionalist legalist. I'm not against tattoos. I'm not against any. This is your body. You know what I mean? I've seen some awesome tattoos. I'm just saying. I'm not against that stuff. But the people who do branding, you do you. Nobody's putting a branding iron on me. I mean, can you imagine? Shh. <laughs> I don't know. I probably sound like a cow when that happens. <laughs> Can you imagine? But the Holy Spirit acts like a brand for us. We are branded by the Holy Spirit. And uh, that, brand, that brand identifies us as believers and as children of the living God. That brand, the Holy Spirit, is the brand that says they are mine. They are mine. You can't erase a brand. You can't erase it. You can't remove the Holy Spirit from someone who has believed. It, we are branded as children of the living God. And the Holy Spirit makes it impossible. That brand makes it impossible for God to deny his own. Impossible. He wouldn't anyways. But he can't deny his own because a piece of him is in us to deny us would be to deny himself, 2 Timothy 2.13. He says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. 
if a piece of him is in us, to deny us would be deny the Holy Spirit. So he's saying, I guarantee you that your mind so much that here's a piece of me, I'll get it when you come back. I'll get it when I come to get you, right? Now, because of that promise, believers should be confident that the best is yet to come, right? Now, in verses 8 through 10, he covers a Christ-like confidence. Let me see how much time we got. I don't, I don't care. We're going to cover it anyway. All right, verse 8 says, yes, we are fully confident, and we would rather be away from these earthly bodies, for then we will be at home with the Lord. The Lord. That's the transition. Earthly body dies, boom, open your eyes with Jesus. That's how it works. Alive, close your eyes in the physical realm, open your eyes with Jesus in the spiritual realm. That's how it happens. Verse 9, so whether we are here in this body or away from this body, our goal is to please him, right? For we must all stand before Christ to be judged. We will all receive whatever we deserve for the good or evil we have done in this earthly body. So Paul is talking about yet another topic that has confused people and been debated about for years. I don't understand why theologians and, and you know, a lot of spiritual leaders love to waste time fighting over stuff. I don't get it. And this is one of those arguments I'm like, you have way too much time on your hands for fighting about this. right? But for centuries, theologians, pastors, religions have debated exactly when we go to heaven. Now, disclaimer. I'm just glad that we do, okay? But the Bible does tell us, and we'll handle that. Now, I could preach for a week on all the different theories out there of how soon we get to be with the Lord after we die, but I'll spare you that, and I'll just mention a few that kind of bug me, okay? The first theory that you hear taught out there about when we get to go to heaven is called soul sleep. How many people have heard of that? Okay, the actual accurate name for that and theological name for that is uh, conditional immortality, Conditional immortality. And I'll give you the definition here. Simply put, this theory teaches that after death, the physical body ceases to function and the life force of the spirit is removed. This means that their conscious existence ends while they wait in the grave for a resurrected body restored by God at the end of time. So you're waiting in the grave until the end of time. So this theory teaches that you die, you go to some you know, spiritual timeout or whatever, and you, know, and you wait until God comes back and decides, okay, time to bust you out. Now I'll give you your spiritual bodies. It's like waiting. Some people have called it sleeping under the altar of God. I call it ridiculous. Because, in short, the Bible will not support this theory in any context. Now there are people that will give you scripture. I promise you they'll just give you a few because they will not give you context because it does not fit. The Bible will not support that. And that's all I've got to say about that. Now we're going to move on. The another one is called purgatory. How many people have heard of purgatory? Oh, a lot of you. Okay, uh, purgatory is basically exclusive to the Roman Catholics, and I'm not bashing them, okay, but I am going to bash this doctrine, okay? Because purgatory, here's the definition, is an interim state in which a correction of a dead person's evil condition is still possible. Okay, purgatory gives the deceased opportunities for repentance and penance, okay? So, for a convenient fee... You could be prayed out of, purgatory was like, well, they were evil, but before they go to hell, we're going to put them in the holding area. And here's how you got a loved one out of purgatory. You would use alms, the giving of alms or money and property and indulgences, buying trinkets. Uh, and if you gave enough money and bought enough trinkets from your family and friends, if they did that, they could get you out of your eternal situation and buy you out of hell and into heaven. Okay, just for a convenient fee, 1995, hit subscribe under the video. You could get your loved one out of prison, soul prison, out of hell. 
Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this theory because there's nothing in the inspired 66 books and the, can uh, the Council of Canonicity accepts. There's nothing in the inspired 66 books of the Bible to support this at all. I would make an argument against it in Scripture, but there's nothing for it in Scripture. It exists from manuscripts outside of the Bible that were added in. Why were they added in? As a fundraiser. I'm just saying. That's why they were added in. The thing that bothers me about this and makes me mad about this is that there were people who were at their weakest, most desperate point of their life. They had lost a loved one, an evil loved one in some cases. And while they're in that, that vulnerable state, they're being taken advantage of. Some of those people, in the, this is in the dark ages, some of those people didn't have enough money to eat. They couldn't live. They didn't have land. So they were starving their children trying to buy a loved one out of purgatory that does not exist. So to me, that's criminal. I'm not going to talk any more about that because it makes me mad. So the only, the only thing the Bible will support is that when we die, we close our eyes in death and we open our eyes with Christ. And I can prove that. And if you'd like to know, I will be happy to sit down with you. But the moment we die, we are immediately with Christ in spirit. And when he comes back for the rapture, we all get our glorified bodies. The Bible will support that. And that's the only thing it will support. Now, in verses 9 and 10, Paul's conclusion is really simple about, on this matter. He basically said that regardless of when we die, the goal is to please God and go to be with him and be rewarded when we get there as believers. That's our goal. Okay, we already have heaven. Our goal is to please him enough to be rewarded. All right, that's our goal. Uh, because they were confident that everyone will stand before God in judgment. I think sometimes we forget that. Realistically, he was mainly talking about believers when they talked about judgment here. But there are two kinds of judgment, one for the believer and one for the unbeliever. Okay, two different kinds of judgment, right? Believers will be judged on their worthiness uh, to serve in the millennial kingdom. That's that time after the rapture, the thousand years that God promised uh, in Revelation. You can read about it. But uh, it, when Jesus reigns supreme on earth for a thousand years, the Jews, their heaven was to be able to serve in that kingdom. That's what they look forward to, not floating around on streets of gold. They look forward to finally reigning with their Messiah here on earth. That's what they look forward to. Well, those who are faithful get the opportunity to do that. Now, look at this, 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15. I'll explain it as we go. It says, according to the grace of God, which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, uh, and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no one can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is... Jesus Christ. So well, who we're talking about here is people building on the foundation of Jesus Christ. That can only be Christians. Only believers can build on the foundation of Christ. Okay? Talking about believers. Now, if any, man's, uh, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, uh, wood, hay, straw, um, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work now here's the analogy when we hear fire we think hell actually rarely in the bible when it talks about flames very few times is it actually talking about hell uh, a lot of most of the time when it talks about fire it's talking about judgment because back at that time you know precious metal silver gold gems things like that they couldn't be consumed with fire but they could be purified with fire so they would take silver or gold and put it through a fire and all the impurities would pop and crack and burn out of it and rise to the top and they'd take and scrape the dross is what it's called off the top 
And what comes out of the fire is the most perfect form of that metal or gem, clean and beautiful, right? So they looked at that as judgment, okay? Because we are judged the same way. God burns off all the stuff that we did that was fake, all the stuff that we did was self-righteous, all the stuff that we did to be seen by man, all the stuff that we did to be uplifted in our own eyes. None of that will get you a reward. If you give a million dollars so everybody will pat you on the back, you are not going to be rewarded in heaven for that million dollars because your reward was the pat on the back, okay? So he's not talking, uh, he's talking about what happens, our, what's rewardable for each of us. So when we die as believers, we're going to heaven. But we have to stand before God. And he's going to say, Chris, when you did that, you had pure heart. I can reward you for this. But when you did this, I know why you did it. You did that out of spite. Now, everybody might have thought you were doing it for the right reason. You were not. That's burn up. I can't reward you for that, right? I can't reward you for that. So that's what they're talking about here. And it says, if any man's work which he has built remains, he will receive. Is it not up there? He'll receive a reward. <laughs> Celebrated pause. Plan that. Right? He will receive a reward. Verse 15, if any man's work was burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, saved yet so as through fire. The NLT, the New Living Translation, actually says this the best of any translation I've seen. It actually says, but he will be saved as though escaping a fire, and that's how the Greek renders it. So there are people who believe, who are going to heaven, who don't have any good works. So they're going to go to heaven, but when they get there, they're going to smell like hell. They walk that close to the line. That's what it's saying. They're going to smell like brimstone. That's how close to the line they walk. But because they were promised eternal life, not based on their works, but on the works of Christ, they still get to come in. They themselves will be saved, yet so as escaping a fire, right? And those who have done good will be rewarded. Now, unbelievers will be judged for their lack of faith and cast into hell. Now, you're going to hear me repeat over and over and over, judge for your deeds, your deeds. The deeds they're talking about here for the unbelievers are just further evidence of a lack of belief. Okay, the deeds they did were motivated, motivated by their lack of belief. Revelation 20 and verse 11. People don't like to hear about hell, but it's as real as heaven. Okay, so verse 11 says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence the earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things that were written in the books according to their deeds. The sea gave up the dead which was in it. The death and Hades gave up the dead which, was in, which were in them, and they were judged, everyone according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now notice there are books and a book. The book of life is everyone who believes name is in that book. The books that were separate from that, those books recorded the deeds of everyone. Whether they, and if their name was not in the book, of the, li uh, the book of life, the book of life determines heaven and hell. This determines what happens. Whether you're going to be you know, disciplined as a believer or rewarded, this reveals why there's no argument for where you're going because your, your deeds show from their intent that you didn't believe. That's all it is. So no believer will be at the great white throne of judgment. No believer. This is only people who did not believe. Right? And people always say, what kind of God would put people in hell? He didn't. He didn't. It wasn't even designed for us. You know that? We are going as, as, you know, intruders. That's how we're going. It was designed for the devil and the fallen angels. It wasn't designed for us. And God's like going, how can you say I threw you in there? 
if you were drowning and I threw you a life preserver and you said, nope, I got it, and drowned, is it my fault? I gave you a simple solution. Grab the dang life preserver. I'll pull you in, you know, but you didn't. Same thing. God made it so easy to become a believer that you have to wait on hands and knees through the blood of Christ for your whole life to deny the fact that he died for you so that you could just believe. You have to wade through the grace and mercy of the blood of Christ to die in unbelief. He made it that simple. So no one can ever say God put someone there. It was the simplest thing in the world, not by works, not by being good enough, just by believing, and you refuse. That's who will be at the great white throne of judgment. So Paul was saying we're not motivated by fear of hell because we're not going to have that. That's not what we're motivated by. We should be inspired by the power of grace. We should be inspired that we serve a loving and gracious God who gives us everything we don't deserve. Now, there are Christians out there who act like they never do anything wrong. We like to call them liars, okay? And here's the way that works, okay? The you that you don't want anyone else to know, God knows. What you do when you're not here, God knows. People act like God can't see you till you walk in church. And you're like, oh, there they are, you know? No, it's not like flip on the light and the cockroaches run. He sees you all the time. Everything you do, everything you say, he sees all of it. Yet, knowing the part of us we don't want anybody to know about, the one that gets mad in traffic, maybe that's just me, right? The one who talks behind people's back, knowing that we would be that person, he still gave us the ability to have eternal life simply by faith because none of us are perfect. He's saying, I love you so much that I'm going to love you and give you eternal life if you'll just believe that it's yours to have. I'll give it to you, right? When you have children, if you haven't had one, especially grandkids, I don't know if I mentioned, do you like them better? But anyway, no, just kidding. But if you, if you have kids, your kids can make you mad. I probably never made my parents mad, but I know other people did. No, I, I, they, every wrinkle on their bodies for me. But when you have kids, no matter what they do, you want them in your home. They don't have to do anything to make you love them. They don't have to do anything to make you want them in your presence. They don't have to do anything to deserve an embrace that you put around them. They get that embrace because they love you. God wants you in heaven not because you deserve it, because you're his child and he loves you, right? The power of grace that should motivate all of us is that this world is not as good as it gets for anyone who believes. Anyone who believes is guaranteed eternal life and is given the promise that the best is yet to come. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and stop there. We'll pick up there next week. I'm going to ask you would to please bow your heads. If this is your first time, we always like to give an invitation. So if you'd like me to pray for you, just make eye contact me. Put your head right back down. Bless those people. Bless those people. And I do pray. Bless those people. Bless those people. Bless those people. If I don't see you, God does. Bless those people. Just warning you, my contacts only go so far. Bless those people. And I do pray. I don't just say that. I pray for you. Because I know all of us need that. Now, believers, I always pray for us. One big reason is the devil's winning when it comes to distracting us. He's not winning when it comes to death. Death already lost. But he sure is distracting us. We're getting distracted with politics and and all this other stuff going on in the world. You know, I haven't watched national news broadcasts in two years because it makes me depressed. Right? That devil is sidetracking us. But the truth of the matter is, doesn't matter. We got a home to look forward to. The best is yet to come.
We need to get focused on that again. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for the love and mercy and grace you've shown each one of us. I thank you so much that despite all of our shortcomings, despite the sinful people we always will be, you loved us so much that you made a way for us to get to heaven, not on our merit, but on yours. Not because we deserve it, but because you love us. And anyone who wants that, they don't have to earn it. They don't have to become good enough. They don't have to change anything. They just have to believe. You'll make the changes you want to make if they'll surrender to you. So I pray if there's someone here who needs that, whatever's holding them back, remove it and just let them feel the love that put you on that cross. And God, for those of us who are believers, the world is distracting us so skillfully. Let us remember that the time is short and the day is sure that you will come. Give us a passion. Let the resurrection promise empower us Give us confidence and make us get about your business so that when you come, you find us trying to enlarge the borders of the kingdom because that is why we're here. We just thank you, Lord, for all that you do, and we give you praise, and we just pray as we leave here that you would keep us safe. Let us live what we profess. If you don't return to take us home, let us come together with a passion for worship and to give you all the praise and glory you're so worthy of. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.